0: Bam, So yes, welcome to the first uh, photography therapy podcast.: Thank you it's my pleasure.: And I've got just simple questions, just simple questions. Can you give me an introduction of who you are, what you do, what your practice, is, and what is your profession, basically? Okay, so my
1: name's Edward Dimsdale. I am I suppose I'm a photographer, a photographic artist. I'm not quite sure how to talk about that. Um, I'm also an educator, so I'm head of the graduate school at the Cambridge School of Visual and Performing Arts, where I head up the MA courses there, and a set of interdisciplinary art and design courses. Um, Yeah, so there's no photography course as such, but photography as a medium, of course, can kind of apply across all of those courses. but So primarily, I don't necessarily work with photography on a daily basis, but I would still identify myself as as a photographer, as someone interested in photography um, who is looking forward to taking up his practice again um, at some point when the day job doesn't take up all the time.
0: And talking about education, you mentioned your... Um, you know, an educator, a lecturer, a professor in an, an MA course. What do, you th- what do you think are the best university courses for photography, especially for, for master's degrees? Uh, well, I would say um, the
1: London College of Communication, MA Photography. I mean, partly because that is the MA Photography um, that I have worked on in the past. I worked on it for 10 years or so. In the between about two thousand and nine and two thousand and sixteen, and I certainly kind of appreciated that was my first kind of such course I was working on. Otherwise, where do I see kind of the most interesting photography coming from at the moment? Um, I'm not sure I can be too definitive because I'm not necessarily looking out for that. In some respects, I'm removed from kind of photography education as such. Interested in maybe a more kind of expanded understanding of how photography might be used in a more interdisciplinary context, although of course photography is already interdisciplinary in so many ways. So uh, I'm, I, I don't really know. I mean, it's not, uh, I suppose I see some interesting photography coming out of ECAL in Switzerland, um, but it's not the kind of kind of work that I would potentially gravitate to kind of ordinarily. But nevertheless, there's something around a particular photographic vision that seems to be encouraged at Ecal, which, you know, I quite enjoy seeing it. But that's mostly kind of photography within the context of um, design subjects, perhaps, and not necessarily a photography, well, there is no such thing as photography pure and simple. But in in terms of courses, I suppose I don't feel qualified to answer that in any way that would
0: be, you
1: know, have any kind of contemporary validity.
0: Okay. Let's jump to the second question. And I think that's the most difficult one out of, out of all of them. What's the true form of a photograph?
1: The true form of a
0: photograph? Because people, people say, in my opinion, what, what I see, what I hear, is that, oh, I'm a photographer, I take pictures, oh, you know, I could be a photographer, it's so simple, and this and that, but what is the true form of a photograph? Well, it's a really easy question to evade,
1: in that actually, and it's a kind of commonplace, that there is no true form of a photograph. You know, don't even think about truth in relation to uh, photography is what I would um, suggest. So, um, but yeah, there's all sorts of kind of perspectives that could be kind of brought about in relation to that. I mean, I suppose speaking for myself, and I'm not gonna speak for anyone else, that I tend to find that if it, you know, I'm very much rooted in an analog approach If I take a photograph that I'm going to in any way care about, it's going to be originating it on film. Um, Tends to be on a snapshot type camera um, that I keep in my pack. Uh, The point at which I take that photograph, it's originated on kind of black and white film stock. I tend to then process it, and then I might not process it for months, sometimes years. Uh, But I think there's something about the latency of that kind of approach, um, that then I then ultimately, once it's taken through a series of other um, processes, darkroom processes, um, I tend never to be satisfied with a so-called straight print out of a darkroom. Um, it's only if it's then pushed through some other phases or stages whether through working with a paper negative process um, or through taking kind of a photographic image into a printmaking space and by printmaking I only really mean um, kind of photopolymer gravure at the point at which there is an image and it's on a piece of paper, that paper might have some kind of photographic emulsion on it, or it might just be a piece of Japanese tissue or a piece of newsprint, if this is the photogravure, it might just be ink on paper, and that piece of paper, it could be tiny and it could be slightly larger, is kind of there in my hand, then it feels like a true, inverted commas, form of a photograph, which is about as crooked a way of dealing with a photograph as opposed to a straight photograph as I suppose one could imagine. So my own accommodation in relation to any kind of thinking about truth is something which is much more to do with a process by which a photograph might ultimately emerge as a print, uh, in print form, than it has anything to do with any kind of object relation to the world.
0: Mommy, yeah. I, I also agree with you in this concept that a photograph is not when you take it, it's not when you have it like or a memory card or in a roll of film, it's when you print it and, you, and it has a purpose. I think that is like a true form of a photograph because once it's tangible, once you can see and you can see the reflections, you can see the imperfections, and you place it somewhere—whether it's for a poster, for a magazine cover, or just a picture in your room—I think that is like a true form of a photograph because it's there, it's tangible, and you can see it. Because images get lost every day, like you know, you know how many pictures we take as as a humanity nowadays, per se. And having something like on a wall or printed on a billboard, I think that is like a true form of a photograph. I think the thing is once you achieve that, once you start printing photographs, is something that makes a photographer a photographer, if that makes sense.
1: I, I, I would, I, you know, I, can, I would certainly sort of, I could subscribe to that as well. But I think there is a point before the taking of a photograph, and I tend to be of the uh, thought that, yeah, I, I tend to take photographs, it became rather fashionable to say, I don't take photographs, I make photographs, and no, I, I take a photograph because I don't really think about it particularly, although I've kind of realised subsequently that that kind of get out clause of, oh, I just don't, I don't think about what I do, I just somehow feel it or intuit a moment and then, you know, click the shutter and then whatever, has been kind of in any way inscribed upon a piece of light sensitive kind of emulsion um, in, in a camera is somehow you know has some kind of validity or kind of purpose to it as you say um, there is in a way maybe the true form of a photograph in that respect is even at every and any moment before the shutters even clicked um, and I suppose that you know what I have been asking myself, what am I responding to when at that moment of of kind of triggering a shutter and it and it tends to be of quite often the the same old things and sometimes very different things um, but if the best I could probably understand at the moment relates to a series of images that I'm kind of working on developing at the moment, trying to give some kind of shape or form to something that might cohere, a series of images. Um, It's got a working title of auspices. Um, What are auspices? Um, That refers back to kind of the uh, ancient Roman form of fortune telling. If you would watch the flight of birds or the behavior of geese, and in some way interpret then the flight of birds, the behavior of birds, as a means of making the best decision about whatever it is you wanted to make a decision about. So auspices, their role was to kind of observe movements in nature, of nature, um, as opposed to um, haruspices that would be about cutting a bird open or cutting an animal open and and reading what could be read into the entrails. So I'm not so much interested in that, but it is that sense of... um, Kind of very dumbly, in some respects, I not even observing nature, but somehow, I suppose it's driven by a sense that there is meaning already out there in the world, most obviously understood by being kind of in the natural world, and that meaning is not a meaning which gives itself available to kind of us immediately. Um, and so. It might even be a meaning to which we have no access. And maybe once upon a time we had access when we were closer to the natural world, when we were more part of it, but with a necessary kind of removal from that meaning. And I put meaning again in inverted commas through, um, I suppose, intuiting or having a guess at or responding to a moment then within that, there may be something that is then captured by physics, by chemistry. Um, You know, I suppose the question originally was what is the true true form of a photograph? And the simplest definition I've ever come across is uh, light modified by objects. So, that could refer to pretty much any photograph. It's light modified by objects. It's a pretty fundamental foundational definition. And so kind of coming back to this notion that there is a meaning out there which is foreclosed to us, we we can't get it, there is no way of actually saying it is absolutely this or that, then a little bit like ancient Roman auspices, it's about interpretation. There's a kind of hermeneutics, a kind of reading meaning into, and so if at various stages in the process, from the taking of a photograph, to the processing of a roll of film and kind of going through that film on a light box with a loop. And then there's a sense in which, oh, maybe there's something there to be taken on to the next stage. And each stage then there's a kind of testing, a stress testing pr- process, procedure, by which something that may not even be obvious, but it's like a hunch, might yet re- might yet provide or might withstand this stress testing process if it 's still there in some way, shape or form in a final print articulation. well, then it seems to be resonating in an appropriate and meaningful way, whatever that is you know of course it's something that is also pro- it's the process itself, whether through kind of the kind of the print making process or more purely photographically through producing a print, making a paper negative of that print, and then contact printing that with another piece of photosensitive paper to produce a final object. In each case, it's a bit like uh, photocopying a photocopy. And if you photocopy a photocopy and then photocopy the photocopy, you get rid of information. Whatever's there is polarized. It becomes blacker and blacker and whiter and whiter. and extraneous information is got rid of, and what is still there is still there. Um, and so in that sense, there's a giving over to that process and a kind of accepting what is got rid of, what remains. And But then of course, in each of these processes, one can make decisions at various points as to what is got rid of and what remains. And so the the process of manipulation uh, is 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 there at every point the decisions made around the materials, around kind of around kind of well all those decisions? I mean, photography is nothing but a process of decisions to be made. Um, the result is whatever those decisions came into into play. And so, um, within the very kind of narrow confines of the decision. Uh, the areas for decision-making that I would engage, then whatever results, results. Mamma mia, that was
0: brilliant. That was brilliant. Thank you. Jumping to the next question is, it's more referred to people who will listen to this and maybe to people who would like to jump into photography or people who are studying photography. So this question comes from a statement and from John. He's my landlord and as mentioned, he's a, he's a multimedia artist. And we were just having a short conversation about photography because every day we have a different conversation about different mediums of art. And he said that he has a friend that he used to be a teacher. I think he's still a teacher in a high school somewhere around here. And he said that the problem, today's problem, is that there are more photography students than photography opportunities and jobs. So now this question relates to what are the three things for an emerging uh, photographer or artist? Because I think photography is, for being a photographer is like being an artist. So what are the three things an emerging photographer slash artist should consider? I have no idea. Take a
1: photograph. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's a really facetious answer. But um, what should someone who wants, I mean, we're all photographers anyway. We know no one, You know, we all take photographs. We're all photographers now because we all have highly sophisticated photographic apparatuses in our pockets. So I suppose, okay, first thing is consider the apparatus, whatever the apparatus is. So I suppose one of my bugbears is any time that a photographer says, oh, I'm not going to talk about the equipment, I'm not going to talk about what camera I use, oh, it's my... And, and I just think that's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. You know, I, wa- I want to talk about what cameras I use. If you don't ask me what cameras I use and how I use them, well, then I'm almost not interested to talk about it. Because anyone who refuses to talk about the apparatus hasn't necessarily thought about the apparatus or is being unnecessarily coy Uh, about it, as if somehow, you know, there's what, you know, there's some secret to uh, to be revealed that might somehow kind of, you know, evaporate the magic. No, I think that ultimately, to think about an apparatus, and I'm not just talking about a photographic apparatus, Um, following the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben and his essay, What is an Apparatus? It's any system of power, system of control, it's anything that produces knowledge in a particular way and it could be a camera, it could be a recording device, it could be a political system, it could be an educational system, it could be, it's really anything that organizes in such a way as it produces yeah, you know, it, it systemizes control in some way, shape or form. And, and I suppose my um, elusive answer to the first part of that is consider the apparatus, understand what it does. You know, different cameras, a digital camera will then um, basically produce a different kind of JPEG. You know, not that you, know, you, you use a Leica as opposed to a contact as opposed to whatever else, it will give you a different outcome. Um, in terms of the colour saturation, in terms of the compression, you know, they are different and therefore understanding that um, and understanding different formats. You know, to take a photograph with a 35mm camera as opposed to an iPhone, as opposed to a RolliFlex twin-lens reflex, as opposed to a 5.4 camera, as opposed to a pinhole camera, you know, every single one of those will, as a different apparatus, will produce a different kind of image. And so to understand that is to begin to understand what you then need to profane, what you need to challenge, what you need to go up against, what you need to bring down, what you need to, in a sense, not simply assume that that is the way that somehow the image has naturally appeared. So I would say to profane any apparatus, and that's not just about a camera apparatus, it would be about any post-production, any kind of, you know, even working with kind of Photoshop or Lightroom. Those are apparatuses which are tools, which are pieces of equipment, but actually to understand what is happening and then looking to profane it, looking to looking to, to challenge it. And so, I mean, I suppose I'm thinking there in directly in relation to Photoshop of a uh, uh, photographic artist like Lucas Blalock, you know, very well known, who, you know, would fail any Photoshop entry course because he basically does very, very ridiculous clone stamping deliberately, alongside a whole, so- a whole number of other strategies. And kind of within that, he is kind of revealing all sorts of perspectives on kind of the image, on image manipulation software, on reflecting that any image, by nature of it being an image, is already a manipulation of some form. Um, But he's making it very, very explicit and he does it with great humour and great intelligence. And so that, I would say, is a kind of profaning of the apparatus of Photoshop. Uh, and even within that, you can start digging into particular tools. You know, you, would, you change the levels, you change kind of how sharp the image is or not. Each one of those, in a sense, is uh, part of an apparatus that then needs to be questioned, attended to, reflected upon. So it is a kind of critical perspectives on what we might often ordinarily take for granted or take as being natural.
0: Nice. And talking about operators and cameras, what cameras
1: do you with? Oh, thank you very much for asking. Um, I tend to use Contax G series cameras. I have a G1 and a G2, and it was an object of considerable desire when uh, I think the G1 came out in kind of the mid to late nineties, and I really, really wanted one because it just looked so good. Uh, and so then I did, I bought a G1 and I just kind of loved it. I actually liked the fact that it was basically, a, you could send it to automatic focus and you didn't have, it was a point and shoot, but it was just like a bit of a, a kind of luxury point and shoot camera. Um, I also uh, have a T2, Contax T2, and um, I tend not to use any other cameras at the moment. I used to sometimes use a Pentax 6-7, I still have that quite like that as, as a very different photographic apparatus and have used others in the past. But I tend to, that's what I, I tend to carry around that G-series rangefinder um, camera.
0: Okay, so you're more of an analogue guy rather right, than digital.
1: Oh, I, 100%. I mean, you know, I'll take, a, I'll take photographs as you know, anyone would on a, on a phone um and you know and i kind of they they have their uses but i have no interest whatsoever personally speaking in originating an image as a as as a digital file and it extends beyond that and it's just because i'm an old git i suppose but also it's kind of where if ever i could add any it's not even about adding value it's about it's about what i'm interested in or what i feel in any way has any kind of inherent value for me, um, was even producing at kind of, at, you know, a certain amount of expense, um, a series of, um, they kind of A2 uh, digital prints from digital images, uh, and, and you know, they were, I printed them out on a kind of beautiful Hannah photo rag paper, and they were, they were just awful. And they were awful insofar as they just, they they didn't do it for me. And so I ended up with that series, I basically just scrunched them all up. though they were all kind of scrunched up. The moment that they were kind of deteriorated um, and squeezed into frames that were too small for the uh, images themselves, then it felt right, that felt good. You know, uh, in the most trite way, I kind of basically destroyed those images, and then (laughs) then they started to work, because, but then, you know, by the same token, I could produce even the scrappiest little image through a more purely analog process. I say purely analog, it's not purely analog, because often there'll be a, in terms of photogravure, there'll be a generally a digitally produced positive, from which you kind of expose a plate and then the paper is kind of the final uh, image that comes from that printing plate. Um, So it's not entirely kind of digital, but fundamentally, you know, there could be a little scrappy piece of newsprint with an image on, but if it's just ink on paper, that will hold my attention and have my care in a way that even the most sumptuously printed gicle print you know, I'm, I'm just personally not interested in it. I mean, I can encounter someone else's kind of digital print or digital work, and I can find it compelling in all sorts of ways, um, you know, in terms of, well, all the decisions that were made that led to whatever those outcomes were. You know, it, I'm not even bothered about how it came to be so much. But in relation as it pertains to my own practice, yeah, just not interested if it's not, in a sense, emerging from a process and a set of materials that, that I feel, whether it's kind of ridiculous, whether it's kind of slightly demented, but whatever it is, it feels like that's right. So the, that rightness, again, inverted commas, uh, is what resonates strongly for me and other forms of work producing work digitally don't. Now, okay, so give me uh, some, I don't know, some fabulous, uh, you know, monochrome M or whatever. Some, you know, g- give me a really high-end uh, digital camera. I might start to change my mind, but I, I somehow don't think I will. Maybe I'm just, you know, lost in the kind of, you know, some kind of, um, kind of obsolete past with romantic notions. Um, but there is something that I would have to say in relation to What operates for me as an an authentic, again in inverted commas, an authentic way of developing images that uh, are a truth, in inverted commas, so far as I can make out.
0: What kind of of, two more pieces of advice you would give to an emerging photographer?
1: Okay, so uh, I'm going to I'm going to play the gamben card again. Uh, And this is from years of lecturing on fine art courses and photography courses and bringing kind of theoretical, philosophical frameworks to bear. But so uh, being put on the spot. So if what is an apparatus is one short essay by Agamben, another one is called what is the contemporary. Now, without going into what Agamben is setting out in what is the contemporary, essentially, in a nutshell, is the proposition that the contemporary is the untimely, that which is not along with the times. And so there's a dictionary definition of contemporaneity, which means now, you know, we are having this com- this conversation, you know, contemporary, you know, along with the times. and uh, But fundamentally, uh, the this notion of untimeliness, which Agamben takes from Friedrich Nietzsche, which is that sense of, that actually to be along with the times, to be a contemporary doesn't necessarily mean to that, that somehow some non-historical archaic past is not as present within a present moment as what we might imagine to be contemporary. So, uh, So I think it's about being able to read history in certain ways to recognize that there is nothing new under the sun to be able to um, actually engage in processes, photographic processes, alternative processes that are you know, alternative slash historical as a means of understanding, getting a, a contemporary purchase, a true contemporary purchase on whatever one might be doing right here and right now. So I suppose it can't just be achieved in a moment, but I would say yeah, history, you know, go, go, into, go into the history of the medium, understand, um, not the history, but the histories of the medium um, and write one's own sense of kind of what, uh, what might pertain to the photographic more generally. Um, through a lens that might be regarded as being kind of historical. Um, of course, not just in relation to the history of photography, but the history of art or kind of science or kind of all the different ways that there might be um, uh, interesting, important, urgent even contexts for considering the contemporary photographic image. I mean, one example would be alchemy. You go back to kind of the medieval... Um, you know, the medieval alchemists who are kind of now regarded or have been regarded often as being just kind of greedy fools trying to kind of turn base metals into gold. Um, but actually, you know, that was both proto science, but also it was spiritual work. Um, the transformation was not only from kind of, you know, lead into gold, it was also about a transformation of the self. Um, and I think that in that respect, um you know anything in a sense from a historical perspective can then become a um a, uh, like a crucible like a laboratory uh, within which to reflect upon contemporary practice so uh yeah i would say in a word um you know considering that you know, of a contemporary practice through kind of historical lenses um, as well as, of course, kind of casting ahead uh, and kind of anticipating all sorts of con- futures might also become a way of thinking about what one is doing in the present. Um, but I would also say that um, well, maybe this should be the third rather than the second because you know, the second might be might have its own containment. But if we're coming on to the third, I would say randomness, randomness, okay. and the random. Um, so that, so I would say the best exercise I've come across um, for someone who wants to kind of either load film into a camera or go out or really think about what it is that they're taking photographs of. And it's, a, and, it, you know, and it's a very well-known strategy. But if you say you have a roll of 36 exposures, you've just loaded a film into a camera, maybe it's the first time you've shot a roll of analog film and you're wanting to just explore that. You go out and you just find something that you want to take a photograph of. No, you don't even need to think about it, just something that you, you think, I'll take a photograph of that. And then, having taken that photograph, you turn 180 degrees round and you take a photograph of whatever is 180 degrees behind you. So without thinking about it, without thinking, oh, what's behind me before you take the photograph? And you do that. So you take 18 photographs of things that you think that you want to take a photograph of. You take another 18 photographs randomly because that happens to be whatever it is, 180 degrees behind you. And ultimately, as you kind of put together the 18 that you intentionally took a photograph of and the 18 that you unintentionally took a photograph of, very often the 18 that you didn't mean to take end up being a more compelling set of photographs than the 18 that you meant to take a photograph of. Wow, that was amazing. And even if they're not, when you revisit those images after a month, after a year, after five years, you'll keep seeing things. You're more liable, I believe, to see elements within the randomly generated set of images than those, intentionally, um, those intentional um, 18 images.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. I'll actually try to do this one day. I'll take a roll of film, 36 exposures, I'll do 50 and 50 as you said. Take a picture of whatever I think I like to see and then turn around by 180 degrees and see what I should have taken the picture of. I think it's just, see, if you haven't done it before, if no one's done it before, it's a useful exercise.
1: And you know, and it's not to say that it is invariably a better set of pictures, but what it does is that it allows one to ask questions respectively about each set of images, about the images that were unintentional and the images that were generated in a more random way. And I think that is then that process of attending to one's own, what one looks at, what one doesn't look at, what one takes in, what one ignores. And of course that kind of mental, that, that mental frame that one puts out onto the world then changes as one kind of refines that mental frame. I mean, that's really just what Stephen Shaw was talking about in his great book, The Nature of Photographs, that itself was a useful adaptation from um, previous uh, ways in which kind of photographers and and people thinking about photography uh, were essentially kind of thinking about what is a photograph? What relates to a photograph? How might we apply frameworks of understanding what a photograph is and, and what it does. And so if anyone wants to put themselves through a kind of little course, so to speak, Stephen Shaw's The Nature of Photographs is a fantastic book that goes through the different levels uh, that a photograph operates on uh, and, uh, and I think is a lot, contains plenty
0: of useful kind of food for thought. Nice. Talking about, this is going to connect really nicely to the next question. So, who are your inspirations and why? It can be an inspiration, once again, it doesn't have to be a person. It doesn't have to be, it can be anything. As you say, like, you, I, I don't know, people get inspired by the light. People get inspired by a book. People get inspired by a voice. What are your inspirations and why?
1: Um, <clears throat> well, um, I think probably like everyone, many, many inspirations uh, I think probably it is, I would say it is uh, it is a photographer um, and it's now a kind of one of, I suppose, one of the biggest names in photography. Although when I first encountered his work, I'd never seen anything like that and I couldn't even understand what I was looking at. So this was many, many years ago and I was teaching at, um, at a high school, teaching English in in Japan in 1984 just before going to university and I went I was beginning to be interested in photography and I went to the library of a university that was associated with this um, high school and they had a series of uh, Japanese photo magazines so I used to flick through that because I was those magazines I was interested in what I could see and I came across a series of images and I just couldn't understand them I couldn't I couldn't compute them I couldn't I couldn't get any kind of handle on them and I couldn't read Japanese so I had no idea <laughs> who the photographer was and there were no kind of useful apps to be able to kind of scan uh, and I and I also didn't ask anyone <laughs> who the photographer was but I then years later a number of years later I was working the photographer's gallery bookshop that was like a kind of part-time job um, and it was also my photographic education in a sense. Working that bookshop, working with other people who were interested in photography, and seeing the books as they came in, and meeting photographers. That was my that was my BA photography. I hadn't studied photography um, at art school, but but I then discovered, I encountered, I came across those images again, and I remembered them kind of years later. Um, by uh, Dido Moriyama. So, big name, you know, everyone might kind of reference Dido Moriyama in all sorts of ways now. Um, But, you know, it was just... And actually, it was not just Moriyama's work, but it was also kind of his writing on photography. So he's not a writer as such, but he would write about photography, and ultimately, when those essays were translated into English, particularly in a series of essays called Memories of a Dog... Uh, and those images, he was talking about those images that, you know, I'm i am not going to be able to describe them, but he describes encountering um, an image in the back of a museum on Hokkaido. This is sometime in the early 1970s. And the image has been so sun-bleached, it's been so kind of exposed and overexposed as a print that you can barely make out what's in it. And it's a kind of, I think it was a kind of ethnographic kind of image of kind of the Ainu people from Hokkaido. And and he just describes it as being a fossil of light. Um, and, and And in that, in the fact that there was, you can't really make it all out. You know, all of those attributes of, of clarity or sharpness or, or somehow being able to resolve an image at the highest so you can really see what's there. None of those qualities pertained at all to that image, and Moriyama kind of reflects on that. Um, but I suppose it's something of that initial encounter with an image that Moriyama had produced and then subsequently finding out him writing about this other image that he had encountered, in a sense, was informing his practice and a kind of reflection that that clarity, that visual clarity or resolution has got nothing to do really with anything that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, Those qualities of kind of clarity, resolution, sharpness, you know, high definition range of all of that kind of stuff, is all well and good, but somehow I was always more interested in the counterpoint to all of those attributes, whatever those counterpoints were. So more famously, in more recent years, the provoke era, um, which Moriyama was associated with, the kind of terms arebure, bokeh, blurry, grainy, shaky, out of focus, that became kind of bokeh, um, which basically just meant it's out of focus, but people just want to give it another term. I mean, you know, the, it's tracing the lineage of an idea that is an idea of being blurry, grainy, out of focus, and you know, looking to understand what might be contained within that kind of visual expression that's pretty much kind of kept me um, interested and going... Um, not to say that there aren't plenty of very, very sharp, very clear, very kind of resolved images that aren't also compelling. But certainly for myself, it's never had quite the same um, inspiration, I suppose. Uh, and that is something which I kind of recognise still, I'm still kind of working through. I, I still, if I produce an image and if I can understand what it is that that image is, if I can describe it to myself or if I can articulate it, then I'm not really interested, you know. I'll, I'll kind of, I, you know, if it's, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm not so interested. But if somehow it, um, again, it's a kind of a romantic notion one might say. But if it somehow is kind of mute or it it doesn't give of itself too readily, then my hunch is that hmm, that 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 can sit where it is at the moment. And maybe, you know, at some point, something might be another layer of the onion that will be peeled off and there might be another understanding of it. So anyway, that's a very roundabout way to talk about inspiration. I would have to say it is kind of Daido Moriyama as much for his writing about photography as it is um, kind of what little bit by little bit over a period of quite many years, I came to understand as being something that um, kind of operated with, uh, you know, with impact for me
0: in relation to what I am interested in and what I look for in my own work. So this, this in- first encounter was, you said, in 1984? Well, this, this first encounter was with some of Moriyama's photographs
1: published in um, Asahi Camera. Yeah, so that was that encounter with Moriyama's work and then later on I encountered him writing about another image which I've never seen because it's, I don't know, maybe still in some museum in Hokkaido or maybe it's been taken down, thrown away or whatever. But, so it's, it's, but nevertheless, that image or his, his description of his encounter with that image is something that helped me to understand that image that I could never resolve and has itself then fed into, I suppose,
0: the images that I like to produce and the images that I'm kind of interested in. So this inspiration has been with you for quite some decades, which which is the definition of inspiration, I guess, because if you get inspired by something that you saw years ago and you still practice it and you're still inspired by it, I think that's brilliant. And this kind of connects to the next question. It it feels like you knew the questions beforehand, it's incredible. So, you were speaking about how you get attracted by the mute of an image, like an image being quite mute and not revealing itself to the viewer immediately. So, what is your decisive moment when you take a picture? Do you stage your images? Do you capture the moment? Do you create the moment? What is your decisive moment? When when, When is it when you press that Okay, well, <clears throat> for a
1: start, I would have to, you know, in, if you're going to use that term decisive moment, well, then you're talking about Cartier-Bresson, you're talking about a particular, um, I would say, kind of theoretically underpinned perspective on on the taking of a photograph. And, you know, I'm, and I wouldn't necessarily say that I am you know i wouldn't necessarily kind of put myself in that kind of place and talk about the the decisive moment i you know i spoke i think i spoke to it a little earlier on i mean that muteness is a muteness in relation to the final image and there's a there's a muteness at the before taking the photograph now of course you know i might then take a photograph and think oh there you go again You've taken another picture of a twig. Oh, well done, Ed. You took a picture of a twig uh, or you took a picture of a bird or you took a picture of, you know, a little whatever it might be, a kind of splatter on a window pane. And, you know, so there's always a point where you kind of end up just going, oh, for goodness sakes, you yeah, know, there you go again. Um, why? I don't really know why. And there might be sometimes something else that is prompted, Um, you know, but I don't, you know, I don't know why, um, you know, I can certainly bore myself with the predictability of some of the things that I might take a photograph of. Um, I tend to, you know, if it's a photograph of a person, they tend to be tiny in a very large landscape. So, you know, in that case, I could say, well, I'm just channeling kind of, you know, Eastern tropes of landscape art or, you know, but, but I don't quite know. I think that muteness is... A sense of not wanting to. I don't really, I don't have a subject matter. Uh, I, I, I would admire anyone who goes out into the world with a subject matter or intentional subject matter and looks I mean, to try and...
0: I ask you why. I mean, I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's second nature for a photographer to have a subject matter. But it's also second nature not to have it. But why don't you have a subject matter? That's just a kind of interest.
1: Well, it depends how pretentious you want me to be.
0: Stun? Stun?
1: Okay. Okay. Well, if I can, if I can be if I can be properly pretentious, um, no. I mean, I think I'm slightly kind of um, deprecating. I think, but again, <clears throat> it's more latterly, as best as I understand it, it might. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but it might arise from some intuition that uh, about the interconnectedness of things of all things of uh, not necessarily being able to or wanting to differentiate between this and that and the other, but some kind of intuition, which is an intuition as old as as intuition might even be, about interconnectedness. And so if, if I can use as a medium, kind of photographic medium, as a means of trying to get at something around the interconnectedness of all things, then, then I think that keeps me kind of interested. And yet I don't, I wouldn't be able to talk to you about the interconnectedness of all things, but it's a sense of, yeah, it's just an apprehension of something as, I suppose, Kind of bland as that. I say bland. It's not bland, but it's a kind of. A, I suppose one might think of it, or I might be pleased to think of it as a more kind of philosophical. One might think of it, or I might be pleased to think of it as a kind of a kind of a spiritual dimension. Um, but something that operates around that. Something that, and it's a it's a word that I overuse again and again. But something that that in which there is. There are resonances, resonances, um, affinities out there in the world that are just waiting for any of us to just spot, identify, resonate with. And, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of ways of being able to shape and frame it kind of psychologically, philosophically, theologically, um, pretty much any illogical that you might want care to take. There are ways of understanding that, but it's, I think that's as best as I can understand it. And in that way, you know, I'm kind of struck dumb by it. I don't really want to talk about it, or I'm not able to talk about it any more than that. If I could, then I wouldn't be taking photographs. So I think it's the kind of, you know, it's a little bit, again, it's a bit of a thorny old cliche, but ultimately, my best shot at attending to that intuition is by means of photography by means of a set of adopted processes, a series of decisions that are made that result in um, quite distilled images, and so that idea of a of a still of a distillery where you just put a whole load of stuff in, and at the end you get some pure drops of something that has been distilled that is derived from all the crap that went in, uh, the heat is applied, the pressure's applied, um, the, the you know, something's evaporated, something's captured, it then comes out as a dis- distillation as best I can. That's what I'm looking to do, that's what I'm looking to achieve. I certainly can't do it through the written word, um, you know, I am verbose, I talk and I talk and I talk and you know, I used to have three-hour lecture windows when I was at LCC and I used to talk for three hours because, you know, when do you stop? All, you know, All you can really do, when you talk about photography, all you can really do, so far as I was concerned, is tell stories. Tell stories, open up ideas. I had nothing to say other than look at this story, think about that story. So it was all about storytelling. If I was to, you know, I could keep talking and talking and, I'm, and I won't, but that talking, in a sense, or the writing, or the any other means available to me, I'm not able to address the intuition in the way that provides me with a degree of satisfaction in any other way than through the particular forms of uh, photography and photographic printmaking that I have so far encountered. And it's not to say that there might not be other ways and means of doing so, but I don't know I'm getting on now so I, I think I think I'm just if anything I'd be thinking I want to just I just do more of that more of that and uh, and that's going to be kind of the very best that I could do but that is that sense of you know it I can I can do something by means of kind of a particular form of photographic
0: printmaking that I can't really do in any other way I I like this I like this approach that I mean it's it's bizarre and fascinating to get at the same time that not having a subject matter. I like it. I like it because when you ask, for example, if you would ask me what's your subject matter, I would sit down for a little bit and think because there's different contexts of when you take photographs. So I would have a subject matter on the streets, but I wouldn't have a subject matter at home, if that makes sense. So it's nice to, it's nice to kind of hear someone saying that not necessarily there has to be a subject matter. Because it's also some sort of a pressure if you think about it. Like, you know, what's your subject matter? And you immediately th- think, and it's like, okay, what is it then? It's like, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But not having one is also like a nice response. Well, the
1: thing is, now, in a sense, now I do. I mean, I've provided a response to that question. And as I say, it is only more recently through reading, through particularly reading a uh, another philosopher, philosopher called Michel Serre, who died in 2019. But through kind of reading some of his writing and translated into English primarily. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm half Swiss French. I have read some of his works in French, but I tend to read it in English. But, you know, that sense of kind of interconnectedness, uh, you know, and that, and that if I name that now as my subject matter, maybe what I do and what I will do is only look for interconnectedness and then suddenly, you know, the subject matter itself will end up pulling the plug on the kind of images that might have spoken to subject matter. So maybe that's it. You know, maybe, maybe I'll never take another kind of, so far as I'm concerned, compelling image because I'll only be looking for subject matter. I'll only be looking for the interconnectedness and therefore the subject matter itself is what causes an evaporation of what had been the latent subject matter that I didn't understand that led to the kind of images that I might kind of appreciate. So it could be that I spend the rest of my life looking for interconnectedness, failing to uh, achieve it, but always then going back to a state of ignorance out of which I might still be able to materialize uh, from that state of so-called innocence, something that might still speak to uh, that subject matter. so I'm a little bit wary. Uh, you know, I kind of feel that maybe it's time to start to develop more other subject matter or to move to another state of unknowing. Um, but anyway, I don't know. So maybe, yeah. ma- maybe I'm stuffed. Maybe I'm stuffed. Maybe too much knowledge is a bad thing. And so that little bit of knowledge or that thought, uh, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe, maybe, Maybe it's not about interconnectedness. Maybe it's just about my own kind of psychological kind of...
0: Interconnectedness. Well, oh,
1: it's not, well, I don't know, kind of a certain kind of adherence to distance or kind of, kind of removal or a kind of state of kind of disengaging from the world and being, you know, maybe it's about that. Maybe I need to tell myself it could be about all sorts of other things. And then that might then allow a bit of space for it to be whatever it is that then, is, you know, emerges from a process and somehow becomes then an articulation in some way, shape or form.
0: Nice, nice. Now I have, I think we, we just, we reached at the end of the podcast and the next question would have been what is a photo essay? Because just, just to give like an explanation what a photo essay is because personally, I don't know. What is a photo essay? Well, by which I take
1: it you mean um, something that doesn 't require language or doesn't require words with which to cohere uh, or to kind of drive some kind of kind of development well you know again you know this isn't this isn 't my thought but um you know there's there's the, there's there are various schools of thought um particularly developed, I think, compellingly by John Berger and the photographer Jean Maur. so the writer, critic, artist, John Berger and Jean Marre, a Swiss-French photographer in a book called Another Way of Telling. So it's a bit of a classic uh, kind of text, uh, but in which, um, and just to reduce it unfairly to one kind of soundbite, but in Another Way of Telling, the argument goes that a single image, a single photographic image, Requires, requires some kind of structure framework, scaffolding of language, a title, some kind of caption, something explicatory, otherwise a single image can be like a helium balloon, you let go of it and it'll just go and float up into, you know, into the ether because you can't, it needs to be pinned down. If, if you, if one as a photographer, wants some kind of intentional meaning with a single image, you're just not gonna be able to do that. Because ultimately, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe that's a definition of an effective photograph as opposed to a photograph that requires more text. But yeah, anyway, it's opening up a whole kind of, a whole, whole courses have been devoted to thinking about the relationship, of course, of the photographic image and text. However, their argument, in another way of telling, is the moment that you start to put one photograph into a sequence with another photograph, and then another photograph, and another photograph. Then that's the point at which photographs can begin to be self. You know, they they, they can be, they, they can begin to not have to rely on on text, on language. I mean, of course, you know, everything becomes language again. We you start to think about or discuss what might be that essay that is developed um, through that sequence. Um, But fundamentally, you know, it is by putting images in sequence. Now, I'll then kind of, I suppose I'll move on again, because I think that that is not necessarily a photo essay. You know, you think about um, sequences by um, photographic artists like Mario Giacomelli, who produced these kind of fantastic, poetical um, evocations that, you know, had a title already. That title begins to set how one might start to think about those images. But, you know, is that an essay as such? I mean, I might, you know, whether whether or not it's too reductive a definition, might begin to think that an essay needs to be persuasive. You know, it needs to have an argument kind of somehow developed through it. Now, if you take that as a definition of what the essayistic might be, then whether or not photographs alone without any kind of... Um, kind of linguistic or textual apparatus around it are able to develop an argument. I think probably that is the case. It is possible, kind of visual intelligence applied. And it is, it's certainly an exercise worth doing. Is it possible to to develop an argument? And you know, I would say probably it is. Um, but whether or not that is you know, the essayistic, as opposed to more kind of poetic evocations that might relate more to the affective rather than the essayistic. I'm not quite sure. I'm going to hold my hands up here and, um, uh, yeah, but, you know, I would say what is a photo essay? I would say it is uh, any means by which um, photographs may be primarily employed to develop some kind of argument or perspective on a topic or set of topics. They may be kind of a more kind of poetic, kind of evocative, um, nebulous kind of argument, or they might be much more kind of precise and looking to attend to something worldly, whatever it might be, But, um, but yeah. I think, you know, I've kind of spoken, I suppose, I kind of reflect upon that question in relation to the relationship of text and image. I don't think that they have to just relate to that. But, um, yeah, I would say that that was
0: what a photo essay might be. Nice. I like the thing of might be. And now the most difficult question out of the whole, the whole questionnaire. What's your favourite number? Seven. Seven. And why?
1: It's not seven. I said seven because seven is a number that everyone says. It's not seven. And
0: what is it then? It's three. Three, and why is it three? And it's not three. <laughs> why is it three?
1: I think the point at which that question was first asked probably at primary school and you just think three and then you just go, yeah, okay, three. And then you kind of stick with it until you say seven because that's what everyone says. And then you think, why seven? Um, okay, why three? Because, okay, here's here's, here's the answer. I don't know how to juggle. I mean, give me three objects or items I can't juggle. My son can juggle, you know, there's plenty of other people who can juggle. I've never taught myself how to juggle. It's not that I can't, maybe I can't, maybe I don't have the coordination, but anyway, you take two items and you, yeah, that's not juggling, that's throwing one up in the air, changing hands and catching it on, that's not juggling. Juggling three items, however, Fundamentally, is you know, as a rule of thumb, you need to be juggling through things. One element always needs to be up in the air and two others in hand, but continually in a, continually in a state of kind of motion to develop an argument. You know, to to, to to consider anything. Anything that is just a binary, it's this or it's this, tends to be pretty, pretty flat. Pretty dull, you know. There's always going to be things that operate between the one or the other, some kind of binary opposite, black, white, male, female, yin, yang, hot, cold. So, therefore, the idea of the third that comes in and has to, you know, pulls the other two out of position. I think that's probably the most the most effective answer I could
0: give. Brilliant well thank you very much not at all it's my
1: pleasure Dom it's as ever my
0: pleasure. pleasure and this is like off the record this is my my, my my personal curiosity do you think because I sometimes think about it and I think why I, I personally take some memories some pictures is that eventually I oh, you know, it's not gonna happen I'm like I touch balls touch it I touch everything that photography can be used as therapy eventually do you think that's there, there's what is your thought on something like this? Do you think photography can be used as therapy for something? Oh, look, I mean, there is no. I mean, I remember I mentioned working in the
1: photographer's gallery in the past, and there was a book back there called Phototherapy Techniques. And if you Google phototherapy, it tends to be about light therapy, you know, going on a sunbed. But actually, you know, the use of photography in care homes of patients with dementia, Alzheimer's, to be able to kind of reconnect them with kind of the past to get to discuss. You know, there's no doubt that, you know, and also, I mean, having taught in on photography courses for over 20 years, you know, the amount of students who clearly are using kind of photography as a means of caring for the self in that respect, in that respect is, is absolutely key. I mean, I started to talk a little bit about kind of the, the, the putting a distance between myself and the world and operated through kind of photographic processes and I think there 's probably quite a lot that you know probably enough there for a for a, to 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 quote faulty towers like a, a whole conference of psychiatrists to reflect upon and and you know and it you know i 'm not going to start to kind of guess there, but yeah of course I might you know, reflect upon kind of my own kind of personal yeah. How I am and who I am and how I operate in the world and how I don't operate and where I'm, you know, in that space, I recognize how I may have used kind of photography as I've been outlining it in ways that are therapeutic. So I think there's no doubt about that. Um, but I think for me, it always operates it, always, it operates in a far more structural way, rather than it being, now I will use photography as a means of kind of therapeutizing either myself or others. Absolutely, I'd say, is like any form of kind of creative expression, it is a means by which one can kind of think about oneself, think about others, help other people think about themselves. As a tool, I would say there's no doubt that it is um, a key, key um tool or set of tools for reflection and certainly I mean there have been some brilliant um, kind of students I and mean, there was one at uh, on the MA Photography at LCC who all of his work was around kind of phototherapy and it was brilliant in terms of kind of using staging the self for kind of to be photographed then to be shared you know it was a, it was a it was brilliant and funny and true and affecting and devastating at times, and honest, and, and photography was simply the tool by which that process of self-reflection was being kind of operated through. Um, you know, I think it's, it's probably gonna be true in all sorts of ways, on all sorts of levels. It doesn't have to be therapeutic as such, but, you know, I think, well, you know, after all, everything's interconnected. So why would it not be?
0: Amazing.